Revelation chapter 21. You know, as we come to this text, what an encouraging passage of Scripture. If you have had a loved one who has passed in the faith, this passage of Scripture is so encouraging. It's a passage of Scripture that I have read to many as they've been on death's bed looking toward glory and going into the presence of God, and it brings great comfort. For my own father, when he was in the hospital, I tried to read this passage. I made it through about three verses, and Paula took over for me because emotionally, as I thought about my dad and what he had to look forward to, I couldn't go any further. This is a passage of Scripture that speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. And you know, this isn't just a passage for people as they're passing or people that we think of who have passed. This is a passage for us. You see, this passage reminds us that it's important to take the long view. You know what I mean by the long view? We can get so bogged down in the things of this earth and this life that we let them take far too much importance in our lives. We focus on the immediate, the thing that's just around the corner, the thing that's next week, the thing that's brought us disappointment or sorrow for a time in this life, and we forget that there is a place that God has prepared for us that's forever. And even though we go through difficulty navigating the struggles and the trials of this life, our God has a place for us in eternity that far outweighs the struggles of this life. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's the hall of fame for people of faith. Abraham was mentioned by the writer of Hebrews in the following way. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out. Not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the promised land, as in a foreign land, living in tents and doing so with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to the last part of this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. When we look in the Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament, there's a lot of perspective about eternity and the importance of looking with the long view to the things of eternity. And we're challenged to do that continually. But in many of those passages, what happens to get us there, what happens as far as eternity itself, it isn't really drilled down on. Well, here in Revelation chapter 21, it is. And we get a glimpse into what awaits believers as they serve and follow God. So, let's explore this together. 
In this text, we're going to see that God makes everything new. And I am so thankful for this passage because of the hope that it brings, but also because of the important perspective that it calls us to. So as we begin this text, first of all, we see this. There's coming a new heaven and a new earth. And what we see in this text is God is going to change heaven and earth into something utterly new. Look with me at the first four verses. It begins with this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now, we're going to think about this first verse to begin with because as we look at this text, it talks about a new heaven and a new earth and the way this is framed in the original language. New, not in the sense that this is a refurbished heaven and earth but new in the sense that this is something that is a replacement and not a repair of the things that are. This earth has been wrecked by sin. When sin entered God's creation, it affected everything. This world has been subject to the curse that was brought about by the fall of man and the sin that entered the world. And we find this in the Word of God. In the book of Revelation, chapter 8, starting at verse 19, it says this, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, do you catch what that's saying? Creation is in bondage to sin every much, every bit as much as, as we are. But what God is going to do when He reveals His glory is this. He will transform creation. It will no longer be affected by sin. But sin will be removed, and the decay that sin brought, done away with. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Until this takes place, sin will still have its effect on creation itself. But God is going to choose to change that. Now, what else do we see in this? We see that not only will the earth pass away, but heaven itself is going to be transformed. A lot of times when we think of heaven, we think in terms of heaven just being heaven and no change in heaven itself. But according to the Word of God, this is a temporary heaven that exists in this time. When God transforms the earth, He is also going to transform heaven itself so that it will be something unique and different to what heaven is right now. Right now, heaven and earth are not together. They're separate. But the Word of God teaches us that when God brings about the events described in Revelation chapter 21, that heaven and earth will be transformed, but rather than being separate like they are now, 
They will actually be brought together and heaven will come to earth and it will be heaven on earth. Now, we use that term flippantly, right? I go to my fishing hole, that favorite fishing hole of mine, and I'll say, man, this is heaven on earth. Guess what? Not even close. Not even close. There is a literal promise in Scripture that heaven and earth will no longer have that separation. When God makes everything new, when He transforms this world and heaven itself, He will bring them together. In fact, the things of this world are going to be utterly destroyed. Peter shares this with us. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, now what he's talking about is heaven and earth. All these things are to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. Now look at this, in which righteousness dwells. This is what God is promising for the future. And so when the Word of God talks about the first earth passing away and the heavens being changed to where there is now a new heaven and a new earth, and the dwelling place of God, as we'll see later in the text, is actually with men, it's going to be so different to what we've experienced in the past. That is our eternity that we look forward to. What a blessing the Word of God gives us in sharing these truths with us. Now, something else we see in this text. The Word of God says something that maybe is alarming to you ocean nuts in the last part of the first verse. It says, and the sea was no more. Now, by the way, I have used this as an excuse with Paula to go to the beach as often as we possibly can. <laughs> Got to get that time in. But what is being communicated by this text? Well, let's think about this. We look at the ocean as something that's beautiful, and it is, and a place where we go to decompress. We look at the ocean as a vacation spot, right? As a place that we look forward to. We plan all year long to go to the beach because we love the ocean. But I want to let you in on a little secret. In the first century, that's not the way they viewed the ocean. In the first century, the ocean was scary. It had monsters that lived in it. They didn't understand some of the creatures that were in the ocean, and it freaked them out. Invaders would often come from the ocean, and so you were always looking on the horizon. Do I see any ships on the horizon? Are we going to have invaders come against us? Terrible storms came off the ocean, and we've experienced that in our own world, right, where we see the devastation of a hurricane. When the Scripture talks about the sea being no more, we don't know whether it's going to be like the time prior to the flood when there wasn't a pronounced sea, or whether this is imagery that's being used to describe for us a world where we need not fear anything in God's world. 
But here's what we do know. Whatever it is, none of us will look at the new heaven that God brings us into and say, gosh, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought there would be more. I thought there would be this. I hear people all the time saying, you know, I sure hope there's such and such in heaven, whatever their favorite thing is. Guess what? When you're in heaven, you won't give a rip. You won't care. That'll be the furthest thing from your mind. You're in the presence of God. And God's presence far exceeds anything else that's even hinted at in our values and in our priorities right now. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 goes on to say, And I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, moments ago, we saw that Abraham looked forward to the city whose foundations and designer were built by God. Here, we see that new city. And the new city is described as a new Jerusalem. Now, as we get into the text a little bit later, much more detail is going to be given to us about this new Jerusalem. But what we do see is this. This is a place prepared by God, and it comes down out of heaven, and it comes to the earth. This is the change, this new earth and this new heaven where the dwelling place of God is no longer separate from the dwelling place of men. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. The presence of God. No separation. No more unseen God. We will be in the presence of God forever. That's the promise of heaven that we find in this Scripture. We will fellowship with God intimately, not separated, but always in His presence. The dwelling place of God will be with His people. And look at the result of this, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of you are struggling with life events right now. And you've shed more than your share of tears. A disappointment, a hurt that you're experiencing. Those things will be a thing of the past. I love the way this is framed. God will wipe it from their eyes. No more sorrow goes on to say, death shall be no more. Man, we look at death as such a part of our life. Loved ones who pass. Loved animals that pass. Grass in my yard that has passed over the winter. Death will be no more. You see, death comes as the result of sin. And because sin has been vanquished and disposed of, God brings something new and different to our experience. Listen, neither shall there be 
mourning or crying nor pain anymore. Those of you who work, you know, wake up, and I'm discovering this as I age, uh, the groans as you get out of bed, <laughs> you know, try to get ready for the day, gone. And it says the former thing, way of things has passed away. It's gone. It's not a part of our experience when we are in the new heaven and the new earth. But then as we continue in the text, we find this explanation. While creation itself will be changed, the Creator remains the same. Look at verse 5. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Anything that was created, transformed by the power of God. But God Himself is changeless. Nothing about God changes. Everything about creation does. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. So, His message through John to us is everything in all of God's creation is going to be made new by God in this day. And you know, as I looked at this text and I thought about this, I thought about how often I get so locked in and focused on the things of this life and the things of this earth when it's not going to last. Nothing in my current experience will last except God. He never changes. He remains the same. So, given that truth, what should be the focal point of my life? The things that pass or the things that last? And I have to say to you that it's the things that last that should captivate our thinking and drive our values and our decisions. When he tells John to write these words down, right at the last part of that fifth verse, notice the testimony that he gives. These are trustworthy and true. Look, you can count on these things. As sure as God is, this is what's coming for His people. So you can count on it. You can trust it. You can invest all of your energy into these things because of the God who is. And then he goes on to talk about his changelessness in the sixth verse. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the changeless God who is and always will be and always was. And all that he does is on the basis of who he is. And look at what he offers to those who come to Him by faith. That sixth verse goes on to say, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Isn't that a beautiful promise that God gives us in His Word? Now, I'm not sure what the spring of life is. It's described a little bit more in the concluding chapter of the book of Revelation. But I do know this, 
the one who claimed to be the living water, brings us to this stream. If you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, and he promised to give her living water if she would believe in him. Here in heaven, for an eternity, we will experience this spring of life. And while there is no payment that we could give to God in order to get it, the payment was secured by the Lord Jesus Christ when He died on the cross to provide a place in heaven for you and for me. The Scripture goes on in the seventh verse to say this, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now what the Word of God is telling us is this, in order to receive all of the things that are described thus far and a little bit more as it will be described later in the chapter, all of these things come to us by overcoming. And when the Scripture talks about overcoming, it's not talking about our human effort. It's talking about our personal faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in John's epistle, he said this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Read it together. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is how we overcome. This is how we experience the heaven that is described in this text. And that alone. Only through belief in Jesus do we experience these promises. And they are there as sure as God is. But then this warning. Look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now this warning reminds us that there are two paths that we can follow. The one path delivers us from our sin. Listen, before we come to faith in Christ, we are judged by the law as these things and more that are mentioned here in the eighth verse. If we are in our sins, if I have offended the law in one point, I'm guilty of it all. So apart from faith in Jesus Christ, this is a path that I will find the conclusion as the lake of fire. But when I have overcome by my personal faith in Jesus Christ, I am delivered from these accusations. I am forgiven and come into a personal relationship with God the Father. Now, as the text continues, we move into drilling down on this idea of the new Jerusalem that will come to the new earth. And we begin in the ninth verse. As we come to the ninth verse, we first of all see the citizens of the new heaven. And look at how this is described. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, Behold, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. Now, pause there for a moment and let's talk about this. Often, what we associate with being the bride of the Lamb is the church. 
But context defines for us exactly who is being discussed as the bride of the Lamb. The context of this passage isn't referring solely to the church. It's referring to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem that is coming to earth. And the text goes on to articulate to us who those inhabitants will be. So look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So this city of New Jerusalem is in heaven. There's a new heaven and new earth, and this new Jerusalem moves from heaven to earth because heaven is coming to earth. And it goes on to discuss it. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that much about gems. I'm not a gemologist. Apparently, jasper in the time in which this was written is quite different than what many of us think of jasper. Jasper in this day was probably more like diamond, and it was clear. And what we know about diamonds is this. When you cut a diamond properly, it reflects glory. It takes light and refracts it so that it sparkles. And you see the beauty of the stone and the beauty of the light. That, to me, is what is being described by John in the best way that he knows how. Can you imagine trying to describe something indescribable with things that would be common to people that they would have awareness of and knowledge of, but everything's going to fall short? This is what John is attempting to do, and he's talking about this new Jerusalem as a beautiful city, but that's not what I want to focus on. Look at verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So first we find the city with 12 gates. Each one of the gates named after one of the tribes of Israel. This is tribute to the people of God who will be a part of the new Jerusalem, who are all of the Old Testament saints. All of those people who died not experiencing the full promises of God, they will now experience the new Jerusalem and they will be citizens of this city. Guarding the 12 gates, 12 angels. Now, we know that there's nothing that they really need to guard because evil is gone. But they're honorary guards. They are there to demonstrate the glory of this city and the glory of God. But then look as the text continues in verse 13. And on the east three gates and the north three great gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates... And the wall of the city had, now listen to this, 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, what might the 12 apostles represent? The church. All who have believed in Christ and are a part of His church, all true believers, 
will be citizens in New Jerusalem. So let's summarize. The Scripture is teaching us that this new Jerusalem will be comprised of all of the faithful, Old Testament and New Testament, and we will actually fellowship with one another. No dividing wall, nothing separating us from one another. Oh, you're an Old Testament saint? Well, I'm a New Testament saint. That's not going to go on. But we will also, as we've already seen, have the presence of God in our midst. And while we don't see angels today, we'll interact with angels. All of this will be a part of our experience in this new Jerusalem, in the new heaven, and on the new earth. And so that is what we have to look forward to. Something else we see in this text is the complete grandeur of this new Jerusalem. Now, what we find as we come to verses 15 through 21 is a description of the size of this city, and it's really kind of inconceivable how big it is. We live on the outskirts of a good-sized city. It's getting smaller right now, but it's still a good-sized city, right? We've probably visited some even bigger cities. They're nothing compared to the city that is described here. So look at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Now, in case you don't know what a stadia is, I fudged and I looked it up. That is 1,500 miles. So I want you to picture a city laid out in a square of 1,500 miles, but that's not the end of it. You see, the city is as wide as it is long, but it's also as tall as it is wide and long. It's a cube. So if you look at the description that we find of this city, it's mind-boggling. You could see it from the moon <laughs> very easily is the idea. Look at what it goes on to say. Its length and width and height are equal. That's where I get the cube idea, right? He also measured the wall, 144 cubits. Now, that's just under 200 feet. And so think of it in terms of a 20-story building. And it says this, the wall was built of jasper while the city was of pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. So what is being described is a glistening, glorious, beautiful place. Now, I've seen some places that are bedecked with jewels, and I walk in and I think, yeah, this is a little over the top, you know, kind of gaudy. Uh, not the case here. Not the case at all. This will be such a place of beauty, and the jewels that are being mentioned in this text are jewels of great worth. So the value, the beauty, the scope, the size of this city that's being described here brings us to terms with the fact 
that God is doing something like has never been seen before. And if He is the architect and creator of the universe, which telescopes are showing us the beauty and the intricacy of the galaxies around us, how easy would it be for God to design a city like this for His people to spend eternity in? That's the hope that we find expressed in this passage. Now, I'm going to have you guys read the various stones that are mentioned here. We're not going to take time to go into that because we could spend all day talking about the gemstones. And most of you would be going (laughs) like that. So we're going to skip past that. But we are going to stop at verse 21. In verse 21, it goes on after describing the scope and the beauty of this city to talk about the gates. And it says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Now, how many of you have heard the term pearly gates? That's where it comes from, right there. And I just thought, yeah, pearly gates, pretty, white, glistening, cool. But you know, I read uh, a commentary by Chuck Swindoll, actually, and he brought out a very important point. How are pearls formed? The suffering of an oyster. A particle gets into the oyster and it secretes layers around the particle so that it won't jab him. It comes from suffering. Now, I don't think it's reading too much into this to think in terms of how one enters the gates of heaven through the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be a reminder that entrance into the new heaven comes through the door the one who suffered on our behalf. Finally, we come to the last part of this passage, verses 22 through 27. And as we look at this part of the passage, we see this hope of constant fellowship with God and His people. Now, let me say this. Sometimes people think in terms of heaven as being one eternal worship service, and that does not sound appealing. Even though we love our worship service, we're kind of glad when it's done. It begins at 10.30 sharp and winds up at 11.45 dull. That's our viewpoint. That's not heaven. Heaven is experiencing the presence of God and the presence of His people, unmarred by sin. Sometimes our interaction within the church can be a time of hurt and disappointment. That will not be a part of our experience when we go into heaven. But notice what is said in the 22nd verse. It says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty, the Almighty and the Lamb. Now, For us, we think, okay, no temple. But I want you to think about this. Our experience with worship has always been centered around a place where we worship God. The temple of the Old Testament was a place where the presence of God 
came into the Holy of Holies, and there was separation between God and man. And the temple was a place where sin was dealt with in interacting with God. Even in the heavenly temple where Jesus went to apply His blood, there was a place there to deal with sin. There is no temple in the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, because sin has been dealt with. It is no more. And because of that, there is no longer any separation between man and God. We are in His presence forever. Each moment, we'll be learning something new about God. We'll be discovering new truths, new revelation that God gives us. You see, we never reach the place to where we know everything because we are finite beings. God is infinite. There's always more that God can share with us and show us. And He will be doing that through eternity. Whenever we see something new and wonderful, we sort of step back and go, wow. Think of that every day, moment by moment, in the presence of God for eternity. Not just the created thing that makes us go, wow, but the Creator who made these things. That will be our experience in heaven. The final part of this passage goes on to describe this city. Look at verse 23. The city has no need of the sun or moon on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What's being described for us in this is the Shekinah glory of God, that glowing manifestation of His glory. We've seen it mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. For example, when Moses went to receive the Ten Commandments, he was exposed to the Shekinah glory of God, and when he came down off the mountain, he had the afterglow of the glory of God for days. When some of the disciples went with Jesus onto the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Christ from within when He was transfigured was shown without, and the glow is described in the Gospels. This is a description of what we'll see in this glorious city, the beautiful light of God. And notice it says, as we continue, verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. Right now we lock our doors and close them up because we don't want somebody to come in and do horrible things to us. No longer an issue. In the first century, it was inconceivable to leave the gates of the city unlocked or unattended. No more an issue. It says there will be no more night there. And then verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. How do you get your name written in the book of life? 
through a personal relationship with God, through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, years ago, I had a friend who would often look at material things or achievements that he had made, and he was thankful, he was grateful for them. But you know what he would always say when he got a new car or would upgrade a house? It's all going to burn. That was his perspective. I'm a temporary steward of a very temporary thing. And he said that as a reminder to himself, but also as a testimony to others, that we really need to evaluate the things that we value and the things that we pursue. New Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, eternal. Plug in whatever current frustration, fear, bobble you've recently gotten, good or bad. Don't take the short view. Take the long view. This passage should inspire us toward an eternal perspective that causes us to weigh things in the light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for the revelation that You have given us of what the people of God have to look forward to, a city not built by human hands, but one that is built by You, God. My prayer is that if there is anyone here who has not overcome by their personal faith in Jesus Christ, who will be cast outside the city because they cannot come through Jesus until they come by faith in Him, that God today would be their hour of decision. For believers, Lord, I pray that You will help us to keep that eternal perspective, to not get bogged down by the disappointments and the things of this life that are temporary, but help us to remember that which is eternal and to make our focus these truths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.